I want to say once again how thankful I am to be here and thankful that each one of you are here. And for those that are listening later, I wish you could have experienced the beginning of this service and the song we just had and the blessing. Truly, God gives us beauty for ashes, a spirit of joy for our heaviness, garments of praise and thanksgiving, and He is unlike anybody that there is anywhere. His mercies are new every morning. His love and His joy, He's beyond comprehension. That is what is always in the background of my mind as I try to preach or approach the Word of God, the truth of God, is His mercy. There's a saying in our culture, and I use it sometimes in, in the right context, perception's reality. Well, that's, that's only partly true. Reality is reality. There is an absolute truth and there's an absolute reality no matter what you think. But when I use that expression, I mean that what you believe about something influences your experience. It influences the way you feel. It influences your mind and your attitude. And this message I have today, you all already have strong beliefs about some of what I'm going to talk about. And that will influence your perception of what I'm going to say. And so I want to request, and that's for everybody here and listening, that you will try to see the truth in what I'm preaching, and have the Holy Spirit of God reveal to you what is true. Even when a man of God gets up to preach an inspired message, that doesn't mean every single word that we say that God agrees with. Is that right, brothers? And I'm not one to say, now say amen, but it's true. The best message I've ever heard, there could be a few phrases that weren't exactly the best they could be, or we miss certain things. And so, as I try to preach today, don't key in on those things. Key in in the overall truth, and you'll see maybe why I'm prefacing this way. I want to preach to you today about spiritual sobriety. That's my title, spiritual sobriety. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Now immediately, I know this message is going to have some conflict in some of your minds because I'm going to talk about alcohol. Because that is our cultural favorite thing to think of when we talk about sober or inebriated. And my position may surprise you uh, and the things I say. So that's why I said just listen. Open-mindedly listen. 1 Peter chapter 1. If you're still turning, it's over there past James. And uh, 13th verse. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind... Be sober and hope to the end for the grace that's to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. When you see a word like wherefore or therefore, He is saying, in light of everything I just told you, I want to tell you this now. Or in other words, I gave you a bunch of teaching and this is what you should do about it. And reading a passage like this reminds me that the gospel is preached not for our intellectual enjoyment, not to satiate our minds or make us amazed at the great theological truths. The gospel is preached to bring us to action. 
If you're lost, the gospel is preached so you can have an act of repenting and seeking God and being saved. If you're saved, the gospel should prompt you and uh, motivate you and even empower you to act to serve God. Through prayer, maybe. Through going to church, maybe. (laughs) At times. But most importantly, through mingling in the world and spreading the love of God. So, he says... Let me read. I'll read prior to the wherefore so you see the context of why Peter feels he can make this statement of what we should do and how we should act. He begins his letter in third verse. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again into a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and it fades not away, reserved in heaven for you, those of you who are kept by the power of God through faith, unto salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. We're in. In other words, in this truth, you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if necessary, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, in whom, though now you see him not, yet believing and trusting, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Searching that or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which when he was in them and did signify, when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, Follow. Unto whom or unto the prophets it was revealed that not unto themselves but unto us as well they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven which things the angels desire to look into. Now, in light of that amazing, overwhelming, eternal truth and the mystery of God and the beautiful the uh, foundational mercy of His character. In light of all that, gird up the loins of your mind. What does that mean? You ever girded anything? What's a, you know what a girdle is? Or you talk about a tree, you talk about the girth. Try to put your arms around a tree. You gird the tree with your arms when you do that. Maybe if you have a girlfriend or a wife, if you still do that, tell her that next time. Come here, let me, let me gird you. <laughs> we don't use the word anymore. But it comes from uh, literally being prepared, or that's what it means. But the, the, where the word comes from is these people in this time, they got the idea from the east instead of the west. They wear these long flowing clothes that you'll trip all over. And so they tuck it all up neatly, put a leather belt around, and then they can go somewhere. They go to battle, they can go on a journey, they go walk, and they're not tripping over what we would call a dress, flowing robes. Paul, when he writes about the spiritual armor of God, what you gird yourself with is very important. But basically, this is an intentional preparing yourself to be ready for what's at hand. This is the only place in the New Testament this Greek word is used. One time, this verse. 
And this one, as opposed to its sister word, which is used in another verse, this verse has the additional connotation of being prepared wherever you are. It means literally, bind yourself about in the midst. And that's significant in the context of this passage. He's not just saying, gird up your mind. This is not something you can do next week. It's not something you can do tomorrow when you wake up. He's saying, in light of everything I told you, wherever you are and whatever moment you prepare your mind, gird it. Dress it appropriately. The other place, there's a very similar word, and and it's the same word to gird up, but it doesn't have the added uh, connotation of being in the midst of where you are. And I want to read you that verse. It's John 21, verse 18. He says, I assure you most solemnly, I tell you, when you were young, this is Jesus speaking to Peter, when you were young and girded yourself and you walked about wherever you pleased to go, But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will put a girdle around you and carry you where you do not wish to go. And the scripture tells us that he was telling him of the death he would die. In other words, when Peter was young, he exercised his own will in his life, even to the sense of dressing himself. But there came a point in his life where somebody else put yoke of bondage around him and drug him into the town to be killed. That's the only other place this idea of, of, of girding that we see from these words. He says, gird up the loins. Loins are your, your hip area. It's where you put a belt. If you're really old, you put a belt much higher than your loins, <laughs> I've noticed. <laughs> if you're really young, your belt is a lot lower on your loins than maybe it should be, depending on the culture you're used to. But this loins, it means it's the hips, it's the center of the body. And more than that, anatomically, metaphorically, it's the place of balance. You talk to a martial artist or somebody who's trained in combatives in the military, and they understand where their center of gravity is, where their balance is. And somebody who understands that can't be easily knocked off their feet. Somebody who doesn't understand, they walk up and bump into them and they might fall down. We're not supposed to be fall-down Christians. We're supposed to gird up the loins, the central balance place of our spiritual life. We're supposed to gird that up. And by the way, it's in your mind, not in your heart. The denomination we're in really emphasizes the role of the heart in, in the spiritual life. And I think that's important. But we can't neglect the role of the mind. The mind is supposed to receive information, translate whether it's true, and feed it to your heart. The heart is deceitfully wicked. (laughs) You can't trust your emotions all the time. But you can trust the leadership of the Spirit confirmed by the Word of God. Gird up the loins of your mind. The word here, the Greek word for mind, is dianoia. And it means... Um, the word noose is in it. You preached on that word. The Greek word noose. This is this deep part of your mind. It's not just the psyche. There's another Greek word, psuche, for that. There's, it's deeper. And this word in particular is deep thought. Properly, the faculty of the mind or its disposition. By implication, it means what your mind exercises itself to do, including the imagination and the understanding. You know part of what's wrong with churches today? 
This is my title, spiritual sobriety. The people are spiritually inebriated. That's part of what's wrong with us. And sometimes I'm that way, and sometimes you're that way. We have to be aware. We must exercise ourselves unto godliness. We need to gird our minds about the deep thought, the things we focus on. The things that we feed ourselves must be things that are to the glory and honor of God. And even if they're good things, they can distract us from that if we don't focus on Him the right way. A couple of us, myself included, have been through that recently. You can feed yourself too much good carnal things. And you have to step away. You have to be careful what you allow yourself to imagine. What you allow your mind to be exercised in. You have to be careful. We all, I believe this, we all will eventually become the product of our desires. What do you desire? Deep down, underneath, more than anything else. I mean, when everything else is stripped away, when you have those days of complete despair, when you have those days of elation, when you have those days of an illusion of self-importance, what's underneath all of that? What do you really desire? That's what you'll become. The end of your life. And so that part of our mind that is our desires and our productivity and our imagination, that creative part of us, that part that engages in a way nothing else does, that's the part especially that should be conditioned by the Word of God. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The Holy Spirit of God, through the truth that He gives us, is supposed to condition your mind so that it can be useful. There's so many people who claim to be saved, and maybe they are, who are completely useless because they're spiritually drunk all the time. I want to give you a few verses where this word, dianoia, the mind, is used to help you understand what it means. Matthew 22, I'm going to go through these quickly. Matthew 22, verse 37. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, all, and with all thy mind. He distinguishes heart, soul, and mind. Because we don't have the capacity to understand what he's talking about without those divisions but you're a whole person. You can't be segmented into a bunch of categories. But that's how he uses the word there. Ephesians 1.18, that the eyes of your understanding, that's the word, the anoia, might be enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of glory of, inher- of the inheritance of the saints. That is a direct contradiction to um, traditional emotionalism which believes that God will reveal Himself to you and skip your mind. This says that it is through your mind, the eyes of your understanding are enlightened, that that gives you hope. The understanding of your mind, when God shows you something that's so real and deep, that's what motivates you on an inward emotional level to serve Him. He doesn't skip your mind to do it. Now, it may be more than your mind can understand. might be more than you can describe in mere words, but He doesn't... Divorce your mind from the process of serving Him. Ephesians 2, verse 3. Among whom also we all had our conversation or lifestyle in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. 
Here, the mind, paranoia is, um, the anoia is uh, coupled with the idea of the flesh. Brothers and sisters, that is the battleground. This part of you that I'm talking about and Peter telling you that you need to gird up your loins of this part of you and I keep pointing anatomically to here because this is where you condition. But I'm not talking about the gray matter of your brain. I'm talking about something else I'm going to try to explain. This is the flesh and it also is the spirit. You are confronted with the duality of your own nature in your mind. And all the time, those imaginations of your mind are making you try to do things that that are not pleasing to God. And if He doesn't condition your desires with His Spirit and with truth, you will do things that are fleshly. One more verse, Hebrews 10, 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and in their minds will I write them. There's something that happens, maybe on a deeper level than we can see with microscopes and medical equipment, that when God saves you, He changes you. And metaphorically, but also on a biological level, He writes His nature, His eternal spiritual law into your mind and into your desires that are deep-seated. Why is it that people change so drastically? I met a a girl a while back at, at Lowe's. And there's, you know, you get a tug in your heart that you just need to talk to somebody. And so I just kind of started out kind of playfully joking around with her. And she had on a... It was a Pink Floyd or Led Zeppelin shirt, and we started talking about that. And she said something about not partying. I said, "Oh yeah, how come you don't party?" She said, "Well, God saved me. I used to." <laughs> I said, "How come you don't now?" <laughs> Sometimes you can just ask people things and find out some really interesting truth. She said, "He took that all that desire out of my heart when he saved me." That's the transformational power when God writes His law in your heart. How many of you, when God saved you, there were people you didn't like before that you were mad at or thought were jerks or thought were stupid? It was gone. Now, because this is a battlefield, those things come back. And we have to chase them away and we have to repent and we have to be sorry and we have to forgive ourselves and forgive others. I will write my law in your hearts and in your minds. It's so beautiful when God saves you. Oh, He changes you on such a fundamental level that you, your desires even change. It's beautiful. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. What does it mean to be sober? The, the Greek word, if you look it up in a lexicon, it, it, it says this, the definition. To be calm and collected in spirit, to be temperate, to be dispassionate, to be circumspect. Oh boy, that contradicts a lot of religious ideas. We're always talking about passion. We're always talking about joy. We're always talking about all these exciting things. And here, part of what he's saying is... 
Don't let your passion guide your actions. Amen. You need to be sober. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but y'all think about how many of y'all have been around people when they're drunk or on drugs? Maybe some of you have actually been in that, that state. And it's pretty much the opposite of this definition. It depends on the person. Sometimes a drunk will get enough liquor in him that all of his sad feelings come out. You've seen those sad drunks. They just want to cry all over your shoulder. You get just enough that they can tell you how bad their marriage is and how their kids hate them, their wife doesn't love them. Some of them are violent. Get enough liquor in them, and that part that they can usually restrain, can't restrain it anymore. Knock holes in the wall, throw their wife and kids around, hit them with things. Some of them are uh, garrulous. They talk too much. Get a little liquor in them, they start telling all the secrets (laughs) about everything. Some of them get an artificial exuberance that looks like joy. I'm a pretty goofy, crazy person sometimes. Y'all know that. And I remember a time when I was at college, a buddy of mine came to visit me, and we were, <laughs> we were goofing around so much, we were laying out on the ground in concrete in the middle of a courtyard at Western, uh, just joking around, acting silly, and people came by and said, man, I wonder how much they had to drink. This idea that you can't have any fun unless you're inebriated. And so this is carried over into the spiritual life. We think we can't really enjoy unless we're spiritually intoxicated. This message is not about alcohol, but I want to talk about it just a little bit because I don't know of any other way to convey what, what God has put in my heart for today. We... I don't know if you, the, the older brothers and sisters here realize, because 50 years ago, I would say just about any Baptist would say you shouldn't drink, right? right. And now, almost anybody my age thinks it's perfectly fine, just so you know, if you're not aware of that. And they've arrived at that conclusion by a process of thought in their mind, and people arrive at the same conclusion spiritually. I had a conversation with a friend of mine recently, just picking his brain. I was curious about him, what he thought. And um, I asked him, and in the beginning, he said, well, all Christians would agree that drunkenness is sin. I said, I I think we could agree on that. Scripture's pretty clear, right? Be not drunken with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And there's plenty of verses on it. So (laughs) I start gauging how he arrived at his moral position, And I find out that uh, his wife drinks enough every night to pass out. And he says it's not sin, it's perfectly fine. And I said, wait a minute, you just said drunkenness is sin, help me understand. He said, well, she doesn't do anything bad while she drinks. Oh, okay. So I said, uh, well, let me ask you this, is gluttony sin? He wouldn't answer me. I said, do I have to do something bad while I overindulge in food for it to be wrong? And so you need to realize that the way that young people are forming their opinions about everything is through a process of an elimination and a learned set of ideals and ideas, and they come to conclusions like that. And he, he, his informed opinion is that when the Bible says don't be drunk, 
It's not talking about the state of passing out from drinking enough liquor. It's talking about doing riotous things while you're in that state. So as long as you're a sad drunk, it's okay. I'm not telling you that to make fun of somebody. I'm telling you that people do the same thing with spiritual sobriety. I can walk around deadheaded all the time and not feel the burdens of the world and not be concerned about the loss. When's the last time you got down sobbing in tears, praying for somebody's soul? I'm proving my point right there. And you know I am. I'm going to move on. How do we lose our spiritual sobriety? I want to give you three um, superstitions or religions that people subscribe to that will make you lose your spiritual sobriety, your soberness of mind, that right-mindedness that it takes to serve God so that you believe every wind of doctrine. False prophets come in and preach and some of you have, have gone places and experienced this kind of thing where people teach things. It's like they've never even read the Bible. And they get up and preach and the people amen them. And I've told you my story about what I think about people's amens. It was bears repeating right now. When I was a very young preacher, first year I was preaching, I'm preaching, preaching, and this elderly man in the back was amening me the whole time. He was the only person in the church that said anything. And he came around the handshake later and said, well, uh, young man, I couldn't hear anything you were saying, but I'm sure it was good. So, <laughs> I don't think much of the applause of men anymore. <laughs> Just a side story for you. All right. How do we lose our spiritual sobriety? The first one that I want you to consider is the superstition of materialism. And I want to read you a definition. This is from a medical doctor who began to realize his Western training was not all sufficient. This is what he said. He says, we're steeped in the superstition of materialism. The superstition of materialism says that this world... This is, this is complicated, so listen closely. That this world is made up of material objects in space and time, and that if there is such a thing as thought or consciousness, then it's the epiphenomenon of matter. In other words, if I have thoughts and feelings and emotions uh, and desires and instincts and drives and likes and dislikes and passion and hatred, if I believe in God or heaven or hell or salvation or damnation or communism or feminism... All these things occur because there's this dance of molecules in my body that biochemical reactions somehow produce this phenomenon that we call thought. That we're physical machines that have somehow learned to think. Well, in fact, it's surely the other way around. Now, that was complicated. Let me try to, to break it down. The superstition of materialism. We've lost an understanding both in our culture in general and in religious culture in particular of the spiritual realm. That superstition of materialism informs our opinions, our decisions, and ultimately our actions. And we have been trained to think of ourselves, this is what I want you to get out of all of that, as physical creatures with a soul, maybe. We look for the material, the tangible, the concrete. People do that in the spiritual realm, and no wonder they're so confused. I've been meeting people my whole life since I've been saved who tell me I'm trying to learn to know the voice of God. 
At least they're honest enough to admit it. There's so many false voices in the world. What is an epiphenomenon? This is, <laughs> I see this in my work all the time. Uh, the medical community says it's a secondary effect or byproduct that arises from but does not causally influence a process. So I want you to realize the medical community, a large part of it, including the um, soft sciences like psychiatry, believe that you are a physical machine. And that on the most fundamental level, there are machines inside of you that if I can influence what they do, I can change what you think. That's how they treat people. Well, my friends at work went to her doctor lately and, and said, you know, I have really low energy. I don't feel good all the time. And instead of doing a blood test to see if she was nutritionally deficient, low vitamin D or something, he said, would you like an antidepressant? First thing. We don't need to see if there's some nutritional problem. If you need to change your diet, if you need to start exercising, here, have an antidepressant. That is not because he's an evil guy or because he's stupid. It's because his medical opinion is steeped in the tradition of materialism. His God is materialism. And he believes on the most fundamental level that you are a composition of machines and that I can introduce a drug in your body, change the way the machines operate, and change what you think. It's what they do every day. And this message is also not about whether you should uh, take drugs, antidepressants, if you need to. That's between you and your doctor and, and, and your God. But listen, humans are more than a mere mechanical apparatus. Think about that. We're more than machines. The building block components of our bodies are more than machines. And on the cellular level, you know what scientists are starting to find out now? There's information. They used to believe the most basic thing is that, that little, you've seen it from science class in high school, there's a nucleus and a little, it looks like a solar system. You've got these little tiny mechanical solar systems inside your body that make you do everything. They're starting to suspect that on a quantum level, which is as low as we can get right now, that your body actually receives information and replicates and does things based on that. And so while a nutritionist or a doctor can identify and don't, don't let me lose you, because this is all about spiritual things. While they can identify the building block components that you need for nutrition, you can take all the protein you need, you can take a synthesized carbohydrate, you can take synthesized vitamins, and it's not the same as getting food which has information in it that came from the Creator. Yes, 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 amen. It's the same in the spiritual realm. You can get tiny little ideas. You can get things to encourage you. You can get things to level you out. You can get things to motivate you. But it's not the same as getting spiritual food that comes from the Creator with the embedded information of the Holy Spirit. That's why so many religious people are utterly dissatisfied and searching all the time for a better truth. There's actually an informational blueprint scientists are now discovering, that we corrupt when we attempt to break down everything into its identifiable component parts. It's amazing. So, the ones who aren't too arrogant to admit it are starting to suspect that we are causing untold changes to what 
our bodies, the level, the way we operate, by all of these things that are introduced that we don't even understand what they do. So to conclude that point, think about this, and it ties in spiritually. What is food? It's more than these building block components. It's more than the caloric intake. It's more than the nutrients. I have a friend, some of y'all have met her. She's named Becca and a beautiful young, young lady. And picture of health now. When I met her, she's uh, maybe 5'2". And uh, she's lost 80 pounds since then. She was all blown up from, from um, steroids that they had her on. She almost died, had a stroke, had a strange problem with her uh, veins, arteries, and... Um, was just about dead when I met her, when I met her and her husband. She couldn't get up a set of stairs without help. And she tried first the synthetic route, and then she tried the vitamin route, and then she tried the food route. And she discovered, and now she goes around campaigning for it, that there's something about food that has an informational component. That's, I mean, you could take vitamin B or vitamin A or some drug, and it's not the same as getting the whole food. Change your life. She's a picture of health now, like I said. It's amazing, amazing. And that applies, that's a spiritual truth as well. See, Jesus used agrarian truths to teach parables, and he still allows us to use food to help us understand ourselves. The second point, I've only got three. I won't be a whole lot longer, so bear with me. The second big overarching umbrella theme that makes us lose spiritual sobriety is what I would call the religion of scientism. These are all the people who claim to be practicing, practicing science, and they're not. C.S. Lewis called scientism the magician's twin. And back then, the 40s, when he recognized that, wrote about it, he recognized that there was a community of experts who was using so-called science just as a magician uses magic. And it's not real science. Real science seeks truth. It seeks to observe things and have empirical evidence. And most of what is called science now is someone's idea that they promote as a religion. Amen. <laughs> Under this, this category of the religion of scientism, I talk about this a lot, is something called academic collectivism. Yeah. Those of you who have been in academia or are in it or gone to college, that is when a group of experts... Now, I preached before about how they became experts. <laughs> it's very comical. They get together and they form a consensus opinion. And because these anointed people who know better than the general population, because they agree, now it's true. Nobody ever stops to think, what if they're wrong? Yeah. <laughs> this is the religion of scientism. And now this academic collectivism, these efforts from these experts come together and collectively they agree. And now everybody says, yeah, true, okay. These days, our experts subject everything. And I'm talking about in the, the more hard sciences. They subject everything to the so-called scientific method. But we all, you think about this, all of us sense intuitively that there's more to life than science. That there are things that can't be neatly and completely explained by a method that relies on things that are observable, repeatable, and measurable. The scientific method cannot prove spiritual things. Amen. Because they're not observable. They're often not repeatable and they're sure not measurable. 
So no wonder we have a community of religious people who do things like, here, don't you believe what the Scripture says? Now you're saved. They don't know if there's been a supernatural change on the inside. They're treating that person with cognitive behavioral therapy like an animal. A conditioned response. Do this, now you should feel this way. If you don't, I'm going to tell you feel that way. And if you don't, I'm going to send you to an expert who makes you feel that way. I'm talking about peace. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. All the experts are telling people there have peace and there's not peace. And the only true peace is Jesus. You know the turmoil? You go out in public if you haven't lately. There's turmoil in people's eyes. And there's brokenness. And there's confusion. And there's despair. And it's all sedated. It's underneath this gray veneer. It's that way spiritually too. How do you quantify, delineate, or condense something that's not observable with the natural eye? Or with scientific equipment? (laughs) How do you test something empirically that you can't put under a microscope or in a double-blind study? Come on, we know better. And yet mindlessly, so many spiritual sometimes and religious people, sometimes Christians, mindlessly they just accept these things. The religion of scientism. It is a religion. If you speak out against it, you may incur the wrath of the religious elite in that group. The third point that really makes us lose spiritual sobriety is the religion of statism. My friend who formed his opinion about whether intoxication to what degree it is considered sinful... His opinion was formed, he doesn't realize it, but his opinion was formed by the religion of statism. His wife didn't do anything illegal while she was passed out drunk. She didn't hurt anybody, so therefore it's not sin. And on a social level, I would agree with him. Well, we're not talking about a social level. We're talking about the spiritual realm. We're talking about the the spiritual realm of your mind. For many people now, including religious people, their moral position is informed by the secular laws of their present culture. For example, I know people who believe that you're committing a moral sin against God if you exceed the speed limit. I don't... Maybe somebody here believes that. I don't know. Now, do you need to drive with some discretion and maybe not speed? Sure, but the speed limit was arbitrary and it was about... uh, Gas conservation, not safety, when I started it. It's just an example. But so much so that people conclude that it's sinful to break any law that the state makes. That's worshiping the state organization. It's called statism. And so whatever the state says about taxes, about my children, about compulsory school attendance, about medical treatment, about jobs, about living standards and conditions, on and on and on, whatever the state says, now that informs my moral position. Let me, let's use Scripture to, to, to show you how people get confused on this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. I had people tell me that. So let's follow it to its logical conclusion. At some point in my life, I think this country will live in a place where the ordinance of man says I can't preach the gospel because it is hate speech. And now, 
if that is your logical and moral position, informed by your religion of statism, you believe that for me to serve God, I cannot preach anymore. And I can't talk about Jesus because the state said I shouldn't, and I should submit myself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, and that's an ordinance of man. This is fundamentalism at its most basic core. People don't think through things like that. They don't think through the informed moral positions that we have, where they got informed from. We don't think through in our culture, particularly in America and in the South, why we're so anti-alcohol and not anti-narcotic. And if it's a legal narcotic, we're completely fine with it. Why? I'm not saying I'm okay or that some of you... I'm talking about the culture. You know what's interesting? You look at school shootings that weren't related to terrorism or so-called terrorism, back to Columbine, and they all have one thing in common. It's not alcohol. You know what it is? Psychotropic medication. That's the evidence. You can research it yourself. Now, I'm not saying if you take antidepressants, you become a murderer. All I'm saying is that is a, a correlation. It might be causative. It might not. It hasn't been studied. But that's a correlation that the experts won't consider. Why? Because they are caught up in the religion of materialism. They think you're a physical being. They can manipulate with impulses from a drug or shockwave. This same medical community used to give people electroshock therapy until their brains turned to mush and thought they were helping them because they no longer had their mood swings. They didn't feel anything. Do you see the extremeness of it? Listen, our focus... Let me ask you this. As we're thinking about sin and cultural sins, and is something sin in one culture and not in another? I mean, is alcohol as big of a sin in a country that never had prohibition? You can think about those things. But the more important question is not that. It's not what I can get by with. It's not what I think I, I can do if, if I really want to. It, if you're a child of God, and if you want His presence and His power in your life, you want His light to shine through like that beautiful letter we read, our question should be, Lord, what would you have me do? Not what can I get by with. Not some abstract idea about whether it's sin or not, because we all sin every day. And there are actions that in themselves aren't sinful in the least that can be brought to sin. It's not sinful to make a living. But you can become greedy and it becomes sin, that money that you have. It's not sinful to eat, but you can eat so much that you give yourself a disorder. It's not, so many things aren't sinful until you carry them to a crazy extreme. And the question shouldn't be, is this act okay? It's what is my heart like and how is my mind being girded? What am I making myself into? I mentioned that verse and people take it out of context and submit to every law of man no matter what, no matter what the cost, no matter what it does to your kids, what it does to you, what it does to your life. That idea, that ideology reeks of spiritual inebriation. People who think that way are completely drunk spiritually. 
They're not in their right minds. They haven't read the body of Scripture. They don't realize that there are people like Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who said, the Lord may or may not deliver us, O king. We don't know, but we will not bow to your false image. They were in a land where the magistrate, the ruler, made a law, and they said, we will not bow. There are times that you must violate the laws of men in order to serve God. And if you don't realize that, you are spiritually inebriated, drunk, not in your right mind. I want to leave you with this thought. Contentment with earthly goods is the mark of a spiritual man or woman, but contentment with our spiritual state is a mark of inward blindness. I've spent a lot of sermons, and several of us have, preaching on contentment lately resting in the Lord. And there's a dichotomy in my own mind and in your own mind that we have to sort out and figure out. And that is, Paul said, I press toward the mark. Listen, somebody who's spiritually content doesn't press toward anything. They don't need to. Do you see the difference? And so, as I try to preach a message like this on spiritual sobriety, there may be a sense of, why does this even matter? What is the point of all this? Because we can't be spiritually content. We have to press toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. We have to remember the hope of our calling. And let, let me finish up with that verse in Peter, because this is beautiful. Gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Some people mistake that and say, well, see, salvation, you, you can't know until the end. No, the word hope. It is the uh, elpizo, the root word is elpis, and it is a confident assurance. He is saying, have utmost confidence that God will bring about the perfected result of His plan for your life if you are sober and vigilant and gird up your mind the way you should. Your life will be what it needs to be. That's the point. You'll be spiritually sober and you'll be happy. You'll be safe. And you'll have peace. I pray the Lord would bless all of you this morning. If you uh, don't have that peace, if you've never experienced complete safety, if you've never experienced that, you can. It takes an unconditional surrender of your will to God. It takes yielding your life, your desires. It takes you giving Him that the part of you that we're talking about today that influences your imagination and thoughts, it takes you being willing to let go of whatever He wants and let Him have His way. That's what repentance is. It's recognizing that you're who you are, that you're broken and you need something more than you can produce and more than any expert can produce and more than any of these false religions can produce. You throw yourself on the mercy of God. And when He saves you, you'll know because you'll have a change. You won't be the same person. You'll have peace. God bless you.